Good morning. I don't know if you've noticed, I'm sure you have, in the year 2020, that we live in a pretty politically correct culture. I'm not even sure I'm allowed to say that word anymore. It may not be uh, acceptable to say that anymore. Who knows? But it has done a lot of things in our culture, some of them good, some of them not so good, but it's certainly changed the way that we talk, hasn't it? There, there, are, there are words that we used to use that we no longer use. And again, not good or bad necessarily inherently. But there's been a lot of changes in the way that we talk. I want to let you know this morning, I no longer want to be called bald, alright? It's offensive to me. I don't really even know why. I don't know what the word means. I would prefer follically independent, okay? That's, that's what I want you to call me from now on. I just get too offended too easily. You know, there's a lot of humor, whether people realize it or not. There's a lot of humor in some of this political correctness that we have adopted. But there's some cases in which we have taken words that are perfectly good and descriptive and, and, and as harsh as they sound, they, they actually describe the truth and we've replaced them with other words that are less offensive. I don't know how many... Tens of millions of babies have been murdered in this country over the last several decades, but we don't call it that, do we? We, we don't call it murdering unborn babies. We call it abortion. I, I don't know how many sexually perverse people you come into contact with on a daily basis, but we don't call it that anymore, and they don't either. Those are people who are just identifying. You know, they're just coming out. They're just discovering who they are and who they want to be, supposedly. You know, there's some words that the Bible uses that are perfectly good. That we have taken as a society, as a culture, and in some cases even as His people, and we have changed them. Because we don't like them. Because they're too hurtful and they, they hit us in between the eyes a little bit too painfully, perhaps. I believe that idolatry is one of those words. Idolatry is a harsh sounding word, isn't it? It's a harsh sounding concept. And if I were to ask you, when's the last time you heard the word idolatry? In a public religious setting. When's the last time, if we could get more personal that you prayed to God, forgive me of my idolatry. I repent of my idolatry, Lord. We tend to rename it and reclassify it, put a stamp on it, put a label on it, and, and excuse it in so many ways in our society, perhaps without even realizing that we're doing it. The I in idolatry primarily stands for the person standing in front of the I struggle with it, okay? I'm not preaching to you this morning. I'm talking and studying with you because this is my struggle as well. Idolatry is alive and well. The Israelites were instructed so clearly about this in Exodus chapter 20 and onward because they had come out of an idolatrous culture. And God was trying to create His own 
people and he wanted them to be rid of that. But you and I, let's face it, we're born into that culture and we're still in it. We haven't come out of an idolatrous culture. We're still living in an idolatrous culture. This morning I want us to remind ourselves of what the Bible has to say about idolatry. And if there's a person here this morning like myself that that needs to be encouraged, that needs to be challenged, convicted, if there's a change that needs to be made, I pray that God will speak directly to you this morning through the study of His Word. Let's begin with the instructions of idolatry. Let me turn this on, that would help. The instructions of idolatry is what we want to begin with in the Bible. We're going to talk about the routes that lead to idolatry and the the route of idolatry. Where does it lead us? And then the response that God has as we consider these instructions. It sort of begins the route to idolatry uh, back in Exodus chapter 20 verses 1 through 7 particularly when God is giving these Ten Commandments to the Israelites, those first three commandments, specifically the first two, they really deal with the route to idolatry. The route to idolatry begins by not obeying the first commandment that God gave. You shall have no other gods before me. You you, you can't have any other gods before me is what God says. That's rule number one. And we might try to parse that and say, well, what does that mean? Does that mean that you know, if, if God's first on my list, that I can have all of my other gods underneath Him? Is that what it means? God wants to be first and then everything else can come underneath? Well, according to the very next command, that's not what it means. It says, you shall not make for yourself a carved image. You can't make any. It's not just that I want to be more important than your gods. That's not what that first command means. It means, I want to be the only God that you have. Don't make any other gods. However it is that you're going to make them, don't don't carve them, any likeness, anything that's in heaven above or that it's in earth beneath, that is in the water under under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. If you make them, you're going to bow down to them and you're going to serve them. You can't have any other gods. Could it be any more clear? As God is speaking to a culture of people who this is the opposite of how they've grown up. Their culture had an idol for almost literally everything you could imagine in the country of Egypt. And God is really saying, I have to be the only one. That wouldn't have been easy. So the route to idolatry begins by disobeying these commands. God says, my name is is more important than any of their names, and you've got to remember not to take it in vain. These first three commands set the stage for everything else. Jesus sort of sums this up in Mark chapter 12, verses 28 through 30, when He's asked which commandment is the most important of all. And Jesus, the Son of God, God Himself put it this way, the most important is hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength until there's nothing left of you to give. 
Jesus even put it in a more understandable way, if there was one, for the people who asked Him this question. But you know, it's in our nature, humanly speaking, to worship something and someone. And if we decide we're going to break this command, I'm going to keep God in my life, but I'm going to have some other gods in my life as well. Then some things happen, inevitably. The route of idolatry looks like this in the Scriptures. It begins by making idols. And then you begin to serve idols. And then you begin to be led astray by idols. And then when you're in trouble, you turn to idols. And you go after idols. You covet things, which is the same as idolatry, Ephesians 5 verse 5. You become insane with idols, Jeremiah 50 verse 38. And you are joined, finally, Hosea 4 17, to the idol that you created, that you decided to worship. The inevitable route of idolatry is enslavement. And that's why God said you can't have any except for me, because you'll go right back into the slavery that I just brought you out of. The route of idolatry is the opposite of what God wants for us. Why? Because God wants something better for His people. The reality of idolatry is this, biblically speaking. It's detestable to God. We, we are senselessly worshiping something that is no God. We may think it is, but it's really no God. These things are worthless these things will become a snare to us. They will utterly pass away. They will lead to confusion. And if we worship them, we are stupid and foolish. That's strong language. It's another word we're not allowed to say anymore, right? Parents. I teach my kids not to say that word, but here God is saying it to us. If we follow idols. It pollutes the land. It separates us from God. It's the equivalent of adultery. And those who do it forsake their hope of steadfast love. That's the reality of idolatry. It's not something to be played around with. It's not something to be carefully and meticulously organized just so I can make sure God is right where He needs to be so that I can have everything else where I want it to be. I mean, make sure that I go to church this morning and, and tonight and Wednesday night so that the rest of my life I can organize however I want to. As long as I'm doing these few things, then God is first. That's not how it works, is it? The reality of idolatry is it consumes us. Habakkuk put it this way, What profit is an idol when its maker has shaped it? A metal image, a teacher of lies. For its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Makes no sense. To worship something that we created. To give our time and, and attention and devotion to something or someone that's the created rather than the creator. What is God's response to idolatry? It has always been these things. It makes Him angry. It brings out His, his righteous jealousy over the spirit that He has caused to dwell within us. James chapter 4. It is grounds for, we don't talk about this a lot, but it's grounds for disfellowshipping a brother or sister in Christ who will not repent of this sin. We talk a lot about disfellowshipping over certain sins. But you can look it up here. You are supposed to not have 
fellowship, to not even eat with a person who claims to be a Christian who is also an idolater. Why? Because God has destined that type of person for eternal punishment. This is a serious issue. This is not something that we should come up with another word for. This is something we should honestly, genuinely take a look at in the Bible and in our own lives to make sure that we are not guilty of it. So let's take a look at some illustrations of what we're talking about. What does this look like in the Bible? Because I want to know if I'm guilty of it, don't you? I don't, I don't want to think that I'm not an idolater. I want to know that I'm not an idolater. I want to know that the things that I enjoy in my life have not become God's, don't you? I don't want to find that out when it's too late. So let's look at a few options here. I think I, I call this stage one, and that's just full-fledged idolatry. You're here this morning in a church building. This is probably not you. But this did describe and still does describe a lot of people who, who, who their entire life is filled with idolatry. That's all that they know. They've completely embraced it. This was the, the people that God had the Israelites cast out and kill and force out of the land of Canaan. Their land was full of detestable things. There were eight occurrences in the Old Testament of worshiping an idol named Molech who people were so devoted to that they sacrificed their own children. Can you imagine? That, that idolatry is such a huge central part of your life that you sacrifice your living child to a God that you invented. It's ridiculous. But there are a lot of people that idolatry consumes them, whether it's mediums or necromancy or witchcraft or prostitutes or wood or stone or metal images or high places dedicated to some kind of God, entire cultures knew nothing but idolatry. And we live in such a culture, don't we? Everywhere we look, there's an idol on every corner, full-fledged idolatry. That's probably not us. What about stage two, which I would say is half and half idolatry? Maybe it's a divided behavior like we see among God's people. You remember we talked about God bringing them out of Egypt, giving them the Ten Commandments. He, he came to them on that mountain and he, he terrified them, didn't He? There was smoke and there was thunder and there was fire and, and the people of Israel were terrified. They said, hey, we'll do whatever you say. Just don't talk to us anymore. Let Moses speak to us. They were terrified. They were on their knees, probably on their faces in front of the presence of God. And then about a month later, at the foot of the same mountain, they demand a what? They demand an idol. Divided behavior. Well, depending on the circumstance, depending on how close God seems to be at the moment, I may or may not worship an idol. And when I worship the idol, I may or may not involve God in that worship of that idol. That's what they were trying to do. Let's have a feast to God while we're worshiping this particular idol. Well, that's divided behavior and God didn't accept it then and He won't accept it now. Then you have something a little more problematic and that's the divided life. Amos talked a lot about this to the people that he prophesied to in the book of Amos. We see some proper worship going on in the book of Amos, don't we? We see some feasts being observed and some solemn assemblies and some singing being done to God, burnt offerings, grain offerings, etc. Chapter 5 verses 21 and 23. 
observe the Sabbath and the new moon. But the problem was God hated that worship. He said, take it away from me. It's noise to me. Stop it. Why? Because the life that you're living is oppressive to other people. The life that you're living does not reflect the God that you claim to worship. Stop it. You are living a divided life. I don't accept it then. I don't accept it now. And then that really all comes from a divided heart, doesn't it? And maybe the best example of this is King Solomon as recorded in 1 Kings 11. When Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God as was the heart of David his father. Solomon, the, the wisest man to ever live, his heart was turned away. It was divided by idolatry. And so there are lots of different Stages and there are lots of different looks, if you will, for idolatry. And this is sort of the second stage. The third stage is much more dangerous for people like you and I. Stage three is religious idolatry. You remember the parable of the prodigal sons in Luke chapter 15? Although the idolatry of the younger son is more evident, we also uncover the idolatry of the older brother in this story, don't we? And this older brother is meant to represent these Jews who have rejected Jesus. He didn't really love his father in this story, and they didn't really love theirs in reality. He only served his father for his own selfish reasons. He put himself in a position with his father where his father owed him something. He had earned what he was getting from his father. And that wasn't certainly true. But this represented the Jews. And in a very real way, the Jews worshipped religion. Isn't it ironic? That their idol has become the very thing that was supposed to point them to God. They let that happen right underneath their noses. John chapter 11 verse 48. Turn in your Bibles to John chapter 11, verse 48. Powerful passage, sobering passage. Back up to verse 47. Let's get a little bit of context. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do for this man? Jesus performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and and our nation. What do we really care about? Pharisees, Sadducees, Jewish people. What do we really care about? When we say things like this. We care about our place. If Jesus comes in here and messes up what we've got. And Rome comes in and displaces us. And takes us out of these positions of authority. We've lost everything. Our nation, our national identity has become more important to us. Than the God it was intended to point us towards. How sad. When the observances set up by God replace God. And let me tell you something. And I tell you from first-hand experience, do not think this can't still happen. You can still worship your religion. And leave God completely out. 
And it's no less of an offensive form of idolatry than a culture who has abandoned God altogether. What do we really care about as God's people? Idolatry, unfortunately, is not an Old Testament topic. It is still an issue. So let's get as practical as we can for just a moment. I'm going to put a list of things up on the board, none of which are wrong. But go through this list in your mind and ask yourself if any of these things have been taken and made into a God in your life. Made into something or someone that has taken the place of your true first love. How important is your stuff? Why do you work to make the money that you make? Why do you really do that? Ask yourself that hard question. Do you really have to have the iPhone 11? Is that what we're up to now? I don't know. Are we up to 12? I missed it. I don't know. Maybe 11, 12. Do you have to have that one? Because if you do, at the expense of something else, that might have become a God. How much have we not done because we're just too prideful? We're just too comfortable. It's just not convenient. How much do we love sports? I mean, could you at least say that as you look at our culture, that the culture has made a God of sports? Is that even up for debate? The only question is, are you worshiping at that altar? Am I saying you can't watch sports? Not, No, not at all. But we have to be really careful, don't we? If that's all we talk about, and that's all we care about, and that's what we live for. I see people, I've seen Christians come to church in a shirt that says, baseball is life, the rest is just details. And I think that's the saddest t-shirt I've ever seen in a church building. Because you can tell by their life that they mean it sometimes, don't they? They mean it. This is all that matters to me. and It's become a God. What we watch. How much revolves around what we watch? Get those kids to bed so we can watch our program. That's my line, okay? I'm guilty of that. You know, we, we schedule entire weeks around, hey, we've got to catch this movie when it comes out this weekend or this television show when it premieres. We make a God out of these things. Sometimes we make a God out of more subtle things like family. Is there really nothing you wouldn't do for your family? We've got to be careful with that, don't we? Jesus said, I came not to bring peace, but a sword. I came to, to, to separate a man from, from his closest relatives because of his belief in me. He's not saying it always happens, but it could and it does. Sex, lust, power, status, money, hobbies, recreation. Did Jesus have a lot of recreation time? You know, if Jesus worshipped recreation the way some of us do, He wouldn't have gotten anything done. If Jesus had said, listen, I really want to, to help you with this problem you have, but I haven't had a vacation in a year. I'm going to take a three-week three week vacation, then I'll come back and, and I'll set up an appointment with you. He never did anything like that. I'm not saying we can't take a vacation. I'm saying we have to be careful that we don't worship it. That we don't bow down to and serve those things. Idolatry is still an issue there might be something that's not on this list that you're thinking, Phew, I'm glad that's not on the list. Well, put it on there. 
Just go ahead and put it on there. If I forgot your particular God, go ahead and write it on there. Exercise. I just thought of that one as a bonus. I got y'all. You didn't know I was coming for you. Exercise. There's some people that you can tell that's all they care about. It's all they care about. We have to be very, very careful. We don't call any of this idolatry, do we? We don't ever hear a family say, listen, we can't be at church this Sunday because we have to go worship our idol. We're not able to help with this service project this weekend because we have some idolatry that we have scheduled. And we, can't, we just can't miss our idolatry this week. We missed it last week. We can't miss it two weeks in a row. We don't call it that. But that's exactly what it is sometimes. Idolatry is insidious. Insidious means that it's intended to entrap or beguile. It's stealthily treacherous or deceitful, operating or proceeding in an inconspicuous or seemingly harmless way, but actually with grave effect. Isn't that what the Bible says about the enemy? Satan usually doesn't show up and say, Hello, I'm here to tempt you. Are you ready? Are you willing to sin today? That's not how it works. The Bible says that, that he prowls around. You've got to be alert and sober-minded because he prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. He, he, he's not being overt. He's, he's not waving his arms. It's insidious. The Bible also says, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For those of you who like sports, just imagine that, that all of these people who get paid millions and millions of dollars to come in and come up with an offensive or defensive plan that the other team can't predict and can't overcome. That's a scheme. Behind your back, behind closed doors, we are working hard to come up with something that you can't beat. That's the devil and he's got your name at the top of a sheet of paper. And the Bible says you need God. And you need the whole armor of God if you want to be able to stand against the offensive coordination of Satan. It's insidious. That's how he works. Idolatry is identifiable. This is where the rubber meets the road this morning. How would I know if I have idolatry in my life? You probably already do by the time... By the time we reach this point in the lesson, you probably already felt, felt a little bit of guilt or a pang of conscience. But if not, let me just nail this home for you. This is what idolatry is defined as. It's the worship of idols or the extreme admiration, love, or reverence for something or someone. I like a lot of the definitions that other people have given. These are not inspired, but they're helpful. I like the way that some of these people are thinking, and maybe this will help you. Augustine said, idolatry is worshiping anything that ought to be used or using anything that ought to be worshipped. Just let that sink in. Idolatry, that for which I would give anything and accept nothing in exchange is the most important thing in my life. Whatever that is, is my God. It's pretty sobering. Every person is serving God or God's in his life and every person is transformed into an image of his God. Who do you look like? Probably starting to look like the thing that you most worship, 
most admire and most revere. Idolatry is having any false god, any object, idea, philosophy, habit, occupation, sport, or whatever that has one's primary concern and loyalty, or that to any degree decreases one's trust in and loyalty to the Lord. Idolatry is when you become the source of your own joy. I like that one. I don't need God to have joy in my life. I just need all of these other gods. They'll make me happy. Idolatry is the practice of seeking the source and provision of what we need, either physically or emotionally, in someone or something other than the one true God. It is the tragically pathetic attempt to squeeze life out of lifeless forms that cannot help us meet our real needs. Is any of this hitting home? This is what it looks like. This is what it feels like in our lives. An idol is the thing in our life that cannot be questioned. Have you ever met somebody who has an idol and you poke that bear a little bit? That's Billy's phrase. I like. I borrowed that from Billy. You poke that bear. You, you ask him about it or you question it. Hey, do you think you're a little too concerned with fill in the blank and boy, you'll see the claws come out. How dare you? How dare you ask me about that? How dare you question my loyalty to God, etc., etc., and it makes him angry. That's an idol. We defend it violently, brutally, ruthlessly, if necessary, when it's attacked. Idolatry means turning a good thing into an ultimate thing. Hopefully all of these are, are helpful. One that means the most to me came from a movie called The Devil Wears Prada. Can't recommend it necessarily. But the guy is in a relationship with a girl who's, who's becoming obsessed with her job. And he basically says to her, you know, in case you were wondering, the person whose calls you always take, that's the relationship you're in. Well, that was profound when, when I heard that. I thought, you know, that's, that's a, a true statement. That the person or thing that you will always put everything else on hold for, that's your God. How many times, I'm just asking, how many times have we said, I can't do that. I can't, I can't be there because of my commitment to God. Instead of the other way around. Instead of saying, listen, I can't be in all these biblical, religious, spiritually minded things because of my commitment to my other gods. It ought to make us all sit up and examine our lives. Idolatry is an issue. It is something that we all struggle with, but it is not incurable. It is not incurable. We see examples in the Scripture. For example, 2 Kings chapter 11, we see a priest named Jehoiada who gives us the example that, that we can, and when idolatry is taken over, we can restore righteousness in our family, in our life, in our community, in our church, wherever it needs to be restored. Jehoiada began by making a covenant between God, the king, and the people. And he put things in right order. Commitments needed to be made. Covenants needed to be reinvigorated. People needed to be on the same page. Restore the righteousness that has left your life, that has left your family. Restore it. Asa had to remove a relationship. Do you remember that Asa had to remove his own mother from the position she was in so that he could 
get back to what God wanted him and the country to be. We might have to remove some relationships in our lives if idolatry has become a problem. And then Josiah gives us the example of reforming the rituals. Get rid of the idols and reform. Reform your lifestyle. Reform your schedule. Reform your thought process and give it back to God. The New Testament puts it this way when it comes to idolaters. Such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified. Put to death, Colossians 3 verse 5, therefore what is earthly in you, put it to death. It's not incurable. But it's going to take work. It's going to take awareness. It's going to take a dedication to allow God to come into our hearts and lives and, and bring us back to where there are no other gods before Him. As children of God, we must turn our attention and our efforts and our passion and our heart and our soul and our mind and strength away from worthless things and back toward the only one who's worthy of those things. I struggle with it. I'm suspicious of anyone who says that they don't. Much like the first century city of Athens, America is full of idols and very religious in all the wrong ways. Acts 17, verse 16 and verse 22. Our attitude toward idolatry should be the one that we were commanded to have in 1 Corinthians 10, 14, and that is to flee from it. Not to hide it, rename it, excuse it, deny it, or combine it with our faith. And certainly not to embrace it. Thank God, James chapter 4, verse 6, that He gives us more grace as we continue this struggle together this morning. This morning, if you are involved in idolatry in any of the ways we've talked about and you need help, please don't, don't leave this place feeling helpless. You're not helpless. God offers help. His people offer help. His Word offers help. You need only ask for it. And it'll be given. This morning, renew your commitment to God, to His people, to His Word, to your promises that you made to Him. And if there's any way we could help you, won't you come as we stand and sing?